Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast for another one of our bonus episodes and our uh, franchise focus specific bonus episodes. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the Los Angeles Lakers, who, of course, started as the Minneapolis Lakers all the way back in 1948 as a member of the BAA before they merged with the NBL to form what we now know as the National Basketball Association. Um, with this one, we're going to first, as we always do, uh, we have three segments for our franchise focus. First, we will talk about the current team's direction and outlook. We'll then look to a historic team from that franchise's history. Uh, and then we'll finally talk about an important player and or legend from that franchise's history. Uh, so we'll start, of course, with the current team's outlook. And um, this is another bit of a complex one because this is a team that employs uh, – two of the best talents in the current NBA, one of them in the conversation for greatest NBA player of all time, uh, and a player who just recently surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, another Laker great, for the number one uh, all-time scoring record, and that is LeBron James. LeBron, of course, 38 years old. Uh, this is his 20th season in the NBA Um He's averaging 30 points per game, eight and a half rebounds, seven assists. It's hard to, you know, bet against LeBron as far as what he'll be able to do over the next few years. We continue to say that as he gets older, he's going to start to slow down in his play. He really hasn't shown any sign of doing that. So if you're the Lakers, you can probably bet on another two or three years of very productive play at the very least from LeBron. Uh, of course, he's supported by Anthony Davis, who has had injury struggles lately, but this season has been a season of perseverance, despite uh, missing some more time with injuries as well. he's When he's played, he's played some of the best basketball of the past five or six years of his career. He's averaging 26 points per game, 12 rebounds, two assists, one and a half or 1.2 steals and two blocks. Um those two are potent enough to be the two best players still on a championship team. We know this, and that's not been the concern for the Lakers over the last few seasons. Uh, in fact, the Lakers did win the championship in 2020. We're talking about a team that in recent years has been a champion, um, but also over the more recent, especially the last couple of seasons, has uh, either been an early playoff exit or has missed the playoffs entirely after a disappointing season. So the questions with the Lakers are not LeBron James and Anthony Davis. The question is, one, Anthony Davis's health, as well as LeBron in recent stretches, but it's the supporting cast alongside those two, which has been a subject of much scrutiny. Let's take the current supporting cast. I'm going to go ahead and file through. Of course, this is relatively soon after the trade deadline. There's been a lot of upheaval with this Lakers squad, a lot of new faces uh, filling out the roster as we know it. Looking at the current team, though, you have, alongside LeBron and Anthony Davis, your two guards, Dennis Schroeder and D'Angelo Russell, your two next best players, I would say. Uh, potentially, Rui Hachimura is in that mix, too, but... Uh, D'Angelo Russell, of course, returning to the Lakers after he was traded away um, in the, I think it was the Brook Lopez deal. Um, but he's, you know, 
a guy that's shooting some of the best percentages of his career this season, um, averaging about 18 points and six assists. He has that potential to be a great tertiary gunner on this squad. Um, Schroeder has been productive this season, playing maybe more minutes than you would want him to be if he's going to be part of your rotation. Maybe he's more of that sixth man, seventh man player coming off of the bench. He's been starting most games for the Lakers. Uh, Maybe we'll see that shift if they have Russell along with Austin Reeves, who's continued to come back from injury. Speaking of Reeves, uh, he's averaging 10 points, three boards, two assists, good shooter. Um, You have Lonnie Walker, the fourth, uh, 13 points, two rebounds. Roy Hachimura, the recent acquisition, uh, 11 and a half points, six rebounds. Troy Brown Jr., seven points, four rebounds. Um, the questions come with, I suppose, that center position. Uh, they did recently acquire Mo Bamba to replace the recently traded Thomas Bryant. So I'm the Lakers are hoping that that's going to be kind of a net neutral at the very least, and that he can match Bryant's averages of 12 points and seven rebounds or do something approximating that. Outside of him, and of course, Anthony Davis is that power forward position, um, we have Jared Vanderbilt and Wenyan Gabriel coming off the bench. Roy Hachimura is already a bit of a, an undersized four. Putting it with five, a little tough to, to see that. So your backup bigs are Vanderbilt and Gabriel, who are productive, and Vanderbilt, especially a, a real defensive presence, uh, uses his size incredibly well. Um, so that works. And again, Mo Bamba, if he can be that starting center, I guess that's more of the question going forward. Um, I'm skeptical if this Lakers team this season can do much more other than slipping into a play-in spot, maybe upsetting a team in the play-in tournament and losing in the first round. And I don't say that to be negative or to hate on the Lakers uh, as a team or their players. I'm just not sure there's quite enough. You know, Russell, I think it's a great move. One of the better moves they've made over the past two or three seasons to bring him back, kind of right that wrong of trading him when he was, you know, just a a rookie second year player. Um, Bringing him back is a great move for this organization. Schroeder is a nice piece that, again, I think he works best as a sixth or seventh man. Reeves is an overachiever. I wonder about his long-term efficacy as a, starting player on a real contender again not to hate on austin reeves but it feels like he's playing above kind of what would be more sustainably expected of him maybe proves me wrong i would be more than happy for him to prove me wrong um they've rectified the wrong they had the last couple of seasons with their roster being older perhaps too old in some positions uh past their primes is maybe a harsh way of saying it, but they rectified that by bringing in younger talent, uh, talent that still has room to grow. But now they have the reverse problem of guys that are still trying to solidify their abilities and their role in the current NBA. And they kind of, if they're going to be a real contending team in that Western conference, they need to have more solidified roles, I suppose. You know, Hachimura, Again, you bring him in, I feel like he's going to be a a nice piece for them. Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, 
Um, Malik Beasley could really be a great six man for them. <clears throat> Excuse me, with his offensive abilities, his shooting touch, his willingness to shoot. Um, I don't know. There's just, and I'm sure we've said this ad nauseum, both me and a lot of you know the the, the popular media has said this that they're just they they seem to need more. You know, they're it's not bad. And it's better than it was last season, but they, it feels like they're lacking something. And I'm not sure exactly what it is. Again, it could just be gelling of the roster. Um, you know, we're still in the um, kind of trial, see what we have in our head coach, Darvin Ham, in that period of, you know, is he a viable head coach? Is he, you know, getting a job at the right time? regardless of his abilities does he have the ability to be a head coach we're still seeing how he does as a coach you know and as they sit right now they're 26 and 32 which is not a terrible record but in the west as densely packed as that you know four through 13 spot is just as easily as they're only you know a handful of games out of a solidified playoff spot they're also sitting at 13th in the West. So it's a strange position to be in. And that's probably what makes this Lakers team as it stands hardest to gauge. This season has been very odd as far as trying to gauge these teams, especially in the West and in that group that I've talked about, you know, you have a team that if they string five wins together, suddenly leaps up into a play play in group and is only two games out of a playoff spot, hypotheticals, of course, or a team that loses, you know, five or six straight games and now is suddenly locked out of, you know, playoff spot and is, you know, in a really tough spot to try and meet the play in. It's just they're they're at a really more and more as the season goes on, and that's true of any season, but especially this season they're at the point where they're either going to have to, you know, make that push coalesce and become the um, contending or playoff team that they have an ability to, and they have the top players to do, or they continue to slump. They have injury troubles and they're out of the playoff picture again. And you're left wondering what this team will look like this next season. Um, They've brought in a little bit, they've recovered their draft capital a little bit. So that provides some, some potential and some possibilities for an off season. If you start to look that way. Um, But I also think if these pieces play well together and now in this back half trade deadline past, they are more affirmed and solid in what and who their team is this team can make a push and be in that play-in playoff group at the end of the season. As a Laker fan, I think everything is just based on what LeBron and Anthony Davis do, and that's as it has been for the last few years. But if they're healthy and they're playing, you feel decent about their chance to be competitive. Um, And again, LeBron shows no signs of showing down. The question is the supporting cast. Do they gel? Does it work together? If not, what's the next move? They've made so many trades. They've brought in big names. 
They're now going with young talent. If this doesn't work, what's the next step? So if you're a Laker fan, I feel like you, you know, you're open for things to work out this season and then you you're just open to whatever happens next. Again, they are a recent champion. They won it in 2020. They're tied with the Celtics for most championships in NBA history. So you can't be too hungry for we gotta win now. But of course, if you're a fan of any NBA team, you want them to be competing every year. So a recent title still is not going to fully satiate the Laker faithful. So you have to imagine they're going to, if things don't work out this season, they'll continue to tinker in the coming off season. Um, Before we move to our next section, let me grab a drink here because my throat is uh, dying at the moment. Okay. I think we're good now. So uh, let's jump to our historic team. And this pick is an easy pick if you're talking about the Lakers history and notable history, but it's a team that in recent years has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle when you're talking about greatest teams in NBA history. So I thought it wouldn't hurt to give them a little bit of their, their just due here. And that team is 1971 to 1972 Los Angeles Lakers who finished the regular season with a, the best record in NBA history at the time, 69 wins, 13 losses, by far the best team in the NBA that season. Their head coach was Bill Sharman, a former Celtic great, ironically enough, who had a stellar coaching career with the Lakers. And uh, they won the championship that season against the New York Knicks. Um, and this team, you know, it goes 11 men, 11 men deep. Oh, excuse me. Got the burps. It goes 11 men deep because that's, you know, rosters simply were a lot smaller at that point in history. And you've got Wilt Chamberlain and Jerry West. Of course, that's where this team begins and ends. Wilt Chamberlain, uh, about 15 points per game as he was in the twilight of his career, but he was still shooting 65% from the floor and grabbing 19 rebounds a game along with four assists. Again, they didn't track steals or blocks at that point in NBA history, but you have to imagine Chamberlain was also averaging at least two or three blocks per game. Uh, so Chamberlain not scoring like you'd expect or, you know, were accustomed to in the days of his 50 point per game average in 62, you know, 10 years removed from that. He was still productive, of course, shooting 42% from free throw line, but that's to be expected. Jerry West is was still at the top of his game, 26 points per game, nearly 10 assists and four rebounds in his own right. Uh, people list him as a shooting guard. He was really a point guard, and him and Oscar Robertson were the best point guards of their era. And West was even better than Oscar Robertson at this point, I would say. Uh, West was still kind of maintaining that level of play. The supporting cast around them is great, under underappreciated, I would say. Gail Goodrich, averaging 26 points per game, he was – the leading scorer in the regular season for them points per game wise. And uh, in the playoffs, he was also their leading scorer. So you think of Weston Chamberlain, but the points are coming from Gail Goodrich shooting nearly 49% from the floor. And again, no three pointers in this era, but I would expect if there was a three, three point line, he would shoot at least 32%, which would still be good for his era. And he would have had his average bump up maybe even 28 points per game. Uh, 
you know, shot 85% from the free throw line, a great shooter and a great scorer. So you have good withdrawing with West. That's a great backcourt tandem. Chamberlain locking it down inside. And then your forwards are very, very solid. Jim McMillan, I mentioned him with our uh, Knicks team from our franchise focus for the Knicks. Uh, Again, won the championship this year with this Lakers squad, but he was adding in those, you know, he was a fourth guy adding in points or, you know, maybe third, he was scoring more than Chamberlain Uh, about 19 points per game, six and a half boards, three assists as solid as a, you know, fourth best player or fifth best player, depending on, you know, him and the next guy we're going to talk about as solid of a player at that type of a role that you could get. And then finally, happy Hairston, um, a name people are going to maybe laugh at Harold Hairston, but you know, more recognizable as happy Hairston uh, 13 points and 13 rebounds per game, adding that additional rebounding dominance alongside Will Chamberlain and Jim McMillan's nice rebounding numbers as a small forward. Uh, that's one of the standouts for this team. They were an incredible rebounding team off the bench. They're solid. You know, they have Keith Erickson, uh, a UCLA guy who was a nice little player, played well enough off the bench, you know, compared to anybody. Flynn Robinson, a former all-star in his own right, uh, actually just a couple of years prior with Milwaukee. And he's coming off your bench and giving you some scoring. You have Leroy Ellis at the center, a longtime center, uh, you know, playing solid backup center basketball, grabbing boards, doing his thing. You have Pat Riley coming off the bench. You know, people forget that once once upon a time, Pat Riley was an NBA player, not just a coach, uh, played with the Rockets, the Lakers, and the Suns. And so you have Pat Riley coming off the bench. You have some savvy, some toughness. He was a defensive player. Um, along with John Trapp and Jim Clements. You know, they're kind of your lower bench guys, not getting a ton of minutes. Uh, John Trapp getting more minutes than Jim Clemens Trapp being a uh, another forward, adding their depth there. But in the playoffs, you know, Chamberlain ups his rebounding average to 21 rebounds per game in the playoffs, playing nearly every minute of every game. Um, Jerry West and Gail Goodrich adding the scoring touch, and they had come short so many times as far as winning a championship alone. This felt like the year you know, they, they were tired of it and they're like, we're just going to win, you know, and they established um, the longest winning streak in NBA history, which I believe still stands. Um, Might as well double check on that while we're at it. Um, Let me see if I can pull this up here. Um, I'm sure these moments are great for you, the listening audience, as I'm trying to fumble around and find these statistics online. Um, yeah, if you check out the Wikipedia page, yeah, 33 game winning streak. I knew that it was the longest record, longest in NBA history. 33 straight games. That's unbelievable. That was from uh November 5th to January 7th. For 2 months they didn't lose a game. That's hard to imagine and you know. But regardless, yeah, great winning streak if you're talking about the greatest teams in nba history a top 10 uh, at least a top 20 this team is inevitably inevitably going to come up in that conversation and again it felt like they just you know were absolutely you know committed and you know they had to win it 
they beat the the Bucks in the conference finals against uh, you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They were the defending champions, and then they beat the Knicks, who would win the championship the very next year, and had beat the Lakers two seasons prior in the in the finals. And it was it was their year. They finally won the championship, and uh, certainly one of the great teams of all time. Especially the story of that team and J- Jerry West in particular. Excuse me, in particular. He had been with the team since 1960, and they had made the finals, you know, eight, nine times. He averaged 40 points per game in the 65 playoffs, you know, and they just couldn't beat Bill Russell's Celtics. Bill Russell retires, and they lose to the Knicks in the finals. And in 72, they get back to the finals, and they say, we got to win it. You know, we're tired of this. And so a great team. And this is where the beginning of the Lakers, as we recognize them, I say really starts because their early championships were in Minneapolis. They were, you know, an early dominant team. They moved to Los Angeles and they were kind of perennial runner up to those Bill Russell teams. They finally win this one and they win it in the classic gold and purple colors. And then, you know, this provided the foundation for the Showtime Lakers that really solidified in people's recollection and knowledge of the NBA's history and lore that the Lakers were one of the great franchises. So certainly a hugely important team, and you can't talk too much about them. If there's one downside to this team or, you know, I wish this hadn't happened, it's the fact that Elgin Baylor retired midseason. He had had even about that same disappointment as Jerry West of multiple finals appearances, not able to win a championship. You know, they lose in the playoffs the previous previous year. Excuse me. He's slowing down as a player in this season. A few games in, he decides he's going to hang it up. And that season they go on to win the championship. That's a disappointing thing. And again, we got to talk about Elgin Baylor. This segues to our important player our legend to talk about and that is elgin baylor because he's um you know one of the as we've talked about with our last couple of players on this franchise focus one of the underappreciated players but he might be the biggest and i might have said that before but his resume his abilities and what he did in the nba and how NBA legends regard him as a player. It's unbelievable. Look at his his. So he played from 1958 to 1972. He played for the last two Minneapolis squads, and then was with the team when they moved to LA. Again, played a couple of games in that championship season, then retired. So technically, did not win the championship, which is devastating. He had a stretch from. 1960 to 1963 where he was averaging 35 points and 17 rebounds per game along with five assists. And again, no steals, no blocks uh, recorded. I imagine he's one or more per game in both of those very easily. And this is a guy that was 6'5", 225, grabbing Nine, he grabbed t- nearly 20 rebounds a game in 1961 at 6'5 as a small forward. You know, if he was a 6'5 power forward, 
it'd be still not as impressive as, you know, six, five small forward. And he's scoring in bunches. His percentages are very high for his era. And, you know, we isolated just a few seasons there, but you take 1958 to 1970 across that whole time frame. He averaged 27.6 points per game, 13.6 rebounds, and four assists. And people talk about him as the original LeBron James, obviously a smaller player, but his strength, his, you know, muscle, his size at his height and his play style fits LeBron. You know, he's a Hall of Famer, an 11-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA, 1959 All-Star Game MVP, as well as the Rookie of the Year that year. Yet he did not win an MVP award either. And so he's further, you know, forgotten in the pantheon of NBA greatest players. And it's a shame. It's a real tragedy, honestly. And I know I'm probably overselling this, but still. He had an all-around game. He could pass. He was an incredible rebounder. Of course, the scoring. The defense would have been there, too. I guarantee it. Uh, He was named to both the 50 greatest players team as well as the 75 greatest players team. And if you want to talk top 20 players, top 15, I'd prefer to say Elgin Baylor is top 15 all time. Still, I know he's playing in the 60s largely, and it's a different game, and he's not facing some of the same opponents that he would in today's game. It's a whole different game. I understand that. But what he was able to do, what he means to the greats of the game that he played alongside and who watched him play, he's got to be in that group. He's got to be top 15, at least easily top 20 all time still to this day. Um, to comment just on his the rest of his career, of course, the Lakers, uh, his incredible performance. He did coach very briefly uh, with the New Orleans Jazz, coached them uh, with Pete Maravich actually was one of the better coaches in New Orleans jazz history, uh, was also an executive briefly with the LA Clippers. Um, let's see, not briefly. He was there a very long time. Uh, <laughs> he was from 86 to, uh, 2008. So that was like his second life was executive of the Clippers. And, I got to say this Wikipedia page is underselling what he did there. Um, He, uh, you know, the win loss record is not great, but they made the playoffs. They won a playoff series, you know, considering it was the Clippers, I think it did pretty good there too. And again, I'll, I'll probably oversell it because I like Elgin Baylor. He's also one of my more favorite players. Um, But yeah, one of the all time greats, maybe the most underrated, underappreciated player in NBA history. Not much more I can add. Recommend learning more about Elgin Baylor, checking out the highlights, checking out uh, NBA legends, talking about him as a player. Um, but still, not much more I can add other than that. Uh, so with that, that takes care of our franchise focus for the the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, the Lakers, along with the Celtics, easily the two greatest franchises in NBA history. Uh, so with that, thanks everyone for listening. Our next uh, episode will either be uh, the 
next weekday normal programming show or it will be uh, another bonus episode for our franchise focuses. Uh, so thanks again for listening and we'll be back with you soon.